the lens in the deer eye is perfectly clear versus ours are more like yellow shooting glasses to filter out some of that ultraviolet. Deer are short-lived. They don't need to have such protection of their eyes and it allows them to see those ultraviolets that are more prominent at dawn and dusk. Hey guys, welcome to the National Deer Association's Deer Season 365 podcast. I'm your host, Brian Grossman, and this week we'll be talking with Dr. Gino D'Angelo, an assistant professor of deer ecology and management at the University of Georgia, about the senses of white-tailed deer, uh, their sense of vision, hearing, as well as their sense of smell, uh, what research has taught us about these senses, and what we can do as deer hunters to overcome those senses, as much as possible at least, to help us fill more deer tags. Gino and I have a great conversation, and he, he shares a, a wealth of knowledge and information about the white-tailed deer that I know you guys are going to enjoy, so be sure to stick around for that. Before we get started, though, this week's episode is brought to you by longtime NDA sponsor, Warehouser, the world's premier timber, land, and forest products company. Warehouser manages millions of acres across the country, and they make a lot of that land available to hunters through their leasing program. So if you're looking for a hunting property for the upcoming season, be sure to check out Warehouser at recreation.warehouser.com. And that's W-E-Y-E-R-H-A-E-U-S-E-R. Also, I want to remind you guys that the special NDA membership for our podcast listeners is still available. Uh, You can head over to our website at deerassociation.com to take advantage of that. Click on the join or renew link and use the promo code podcast. That's going to save you $5 off the price of an annual membership. And we're going to throw in an NDA cap for you as well. So that's that's a great offer. Still making that available. A lot of you guys have taken advantage of that and we appreciate that support. But if you haven't yet, be sure to head over to DeerAssociation.com and either join or renew your membership. Hey, if you're listening to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, hey, we would greatly appreciate you taking just a second to give us a five-star rating on either of those platforms. And if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, hey, we'd also love to hear from you in the form of a written review. Uh, Let us know what you like about the podcast or what you don't like about the podcast, uh, who you'd like us to have on as a guest, or hey, just drop us a word of encouragement. Uh, We would love to hear from you. And those ratings and reviews really help us to move up in the podcast rankings so more people can can find us when they're searching for a great for great deer hunting content. So please just just take a moment of your time to drop us that rating or review. And that would mean a uh, that would mean an awful lot to us. So we appreciate your support but with that. Hey, let's jump on the phone with Dr. Gino D'Angelo to talk about the deer census and how we can use that knowledge of those senses to be more successful deer hunters. Hey, Gino, how are you? Doing pretty well. Thanks for having me on today, Brian. Oh, not a problem. We uh, we appreciate you taking time out of out of your work schedule to talk to us a little bit about deer senses. And uh, this is a conversation I, I've been looking forward to, and I know a lot of our listeners are. I think will, will enjoy this as well. So, but. You know, before we dive into all the science, so can you just uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and kind of what led you into researching whitetail senses? Absolutely. Yeah. Like your listeners, I'm a deer hunter. I call myself a big deer hunter. I don't kill big deer, but I love hunting deer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and like you, I'm also a public land hunter. So uh, as much as we learn about deer senses, I'm, I'm always out there learning in the field. I'm a um, faculty member at University of Georgia. And I like to, uh, to work with our students, a lot of grad student work on deer senses and deer movements and habitat management, and population management. But how I got into the field was my family um, of a bunch of hunters, you know, in Pennsylvania, like many of your listeners from the, the big deer states are also. Um, and just fascinated with deer from day one. And I found that you could go to school and learn more about deer and other wildlife. And, and that just set the stage for me. I went to Penn State and I lived and worked at the captive deer research facility there. 
came to University of Georgia for grad school. And then I worked for U.S. Department of Agriculture and Minnesota Department of Natural Resources before coming back to UGA to uh, to teach. So um, deer consume much of my life. <laughs> yeah, it's funny how many, you know, guys in, in your field or in the wildlife field, you know, have, have share that similar story. They, they were they were deer hunters first. And, you know, that led them into this this career path. And uh, it's also cool about the, the science. You know, a lot of the guys we bring on here to talk about stuff like this um, stems from their own interest in deer hunting. You know, they're answering or going out there researching the questions that they had along the way uh, while, while they were out there, you know, enjoying the outdoors. So it's just always good to good to talk about this kind of stuff. Um, sometimes, you know, with with the research, you kind of you got to dig through a, a lot of statistics and, and scientific speak. But there's a lot of great information there, uh, you know, for the for the everyday hunter, if you just kind of dig through it. And and that's what we try to do here with at the NDA is is take stuff like this and, and present it in a way that, you know, it's it's easy for the for the everyday hunter uh, like myself to, to understand and be able to take some kind of nuggets away from it that'll make them a, a better deer hunter but yeah so yeah let's let's jump right in with the uh, the sense that probably has saved more white-tailed deer than than any other uh and that's their sense of smell and but bef- before we get into the deer side of it though can you can you kind of briefly touch on what exactly is it that are they smelling of humans you know obviously you know if you're out there and you're sweating and and producing body odor or or if you're out there you know with some kind of heavy scented um you know body wash or something like that i mean that's obvious but but aside from that what is it that they're picking up that they're they're being able to smell and identify us as hunters yeah they're smelling chemical compounds which we're still learning a lot about i mean that's one thing i'll highlight is that we work with people who have expertises different than than ours and so Folks that work in laboratory settings identify the different compounds that make up these these scents. And so these volatile fatty acids, et cetera, that make up scents. Some of the scents that that we'll find in ecosystems are, of course, bacterial in nature. So, you know, we all carry a lot of bacteria on us. If you've been at deer camp or out in the outback, (laughs) you know, bacteria grows on you and you start to smell your hunting buddies. I never smell myself. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and so with all of these senses, I like to sit back and say, well, what what would I smell? Right. Like when I'm in my deer stand behind my my house in Jackson County, Georgia, it's in a neighborhood, small 10 acre um, you know, lot that we have. I can smell when my neighbors I know what neighbors are doing laundry when because I can smell smell those scents. I can smell who's cooking, who's got, uh, you know, firewood in the stove. And so sometimes just sitting back and saying, you know, obviously we don't know what chemicals we're smelling, but it's something different in our environment. It's something different than what's coming from from my home. And I can tell that something's wafting from a certain direction, carried by the wind, you know, held by air molecules and water molecules. And I'm sensing its direction and it's different than what's immediately around me. And is that something that's going to trip my security system as a human? Usually not. But if I'm a deer or a wild animal that I know the scents that are around me, including some of those human scents, something that's different or closer or coming from a different direction is going to trip that security system in me. Yeah. Can can you, I guess, start by just giving us an idea, just some broad level things. What, What do we know about a deer's sense of smell? Yeah, we know it's, you know, we can't pin exactly how many times better than than our sense of smell that it is. We know that they've got a very broad um, olfactory epithelium. Think about how long a deer's nose is and all of those channels that can bring in those air molecules and water molecules and sense that information and send it to the brain by the olfactory bulb. Um, we know that they have a smaller brain than us. So processing that information is much different, but probably, like I said, broad scale trip in that security system. We don't have a good idea exactly how much better than our sense of smell that it is, just that it's likely greatly enhanced. And another example I like to think about is is dogs, right? You know, we use dogs for, for sensing um, 
you know, even in, in our luggage at the airport, fruits, vegetables, firearms, gunpowder residue. Um, we use dogs for, for trailing, for hunting purposes. And likely if Brian, if you or I got down our hands and knees, we likely wouldn't smell, um, at the same intensity, what a dog can smell. Likewise with the deer, you know, when they cross your path in the woods that they're able to pick up at a much higher level, those scent molecules. And so, you know, I, I wish I could put an exact magnitude on it this many times better than <laughs> ours. We just know it's a lot better and there are no definitive studies to state, Hey, this is, this is where they're better than us or how many times better than us they are at sensing certain scents. Right. Do we know, I mean, you use the dog there as a comparison and that's one I often hear. Um, do we know that they have a better sense of smell or more, I guess, uh, olfactory receptors than, than dogs? Yeah, from what, what I read, honestly, we don't have any uh, in-house research on this that likely predators maybe are even better at sensing smells or differentiating among senses or sense versus deer. But I don't I don't have anything definitive on that front. As you know, you know, deer have these multiple glands, seven glands on their body at least, which have differences in scent. So they can clearly differentiate among those scents that their own species put out into the environment. Likely they differentiate among different predator species, those that are, you know, think of small mammals that likely aren't as much of a threat to them versus larger animals like wolves and mountain lions, etc. But you know, to definitively say how much different or how better it is than, than predators, we can't say exactly, but it, it does look like predators might be, might rely on their sense of scent um, a little more than, than prey species. Yeah. No. Just think about the, excuse me, the detailed work even that, that predators do in terms of, of trailing up a prey species or, you know, um, using scent communication in the environment. Of course, deer do. But for predators, day in and day out, throughout the seasons, not just during reproductive seasons, they're relying on their sense of scent probably more than deer to find food resources and, um, and you know, to make a living. Yeah. N knowing what you do about a, a deer's sense of smell, and I guess I'm, I'm asking for, for some speculation here, but uh, do you think any, any of these commercial scent sprays and scent eliminating products, you think you know, are you actually, is there any way to actually beat a deer's nose to actually, you know, cover a scent to where this deer is no longer, no longer smelling you? Yeah. I, you know, I mean, I've seen some, some tests, even military tests of, of some strategies to reduce, um, an animal's ability to detect sense. And I think that it, just as you indicated, cover sense, we're covering it up. Is it a scent that maybe they're familiar with? but it doesn't bother them or it's a scent that they're naive to and it's not going to trigger their security system, but we're always going to have scents out there. Um, you know, thermals are going to rise. The wind's always going to blow. Um, and so I think a scent of some sort is always going to be carried. Certain clothing items certainly can contain that scent for some time, but as soon as we start to perspire, um, you know, the, the whistle's blown. And, you know, I think clearly utilizing detergents that have perfumes in them is going to be something that could be an issue um, in the field. Going to a diner and enjoying a greasy breakfast in your hunting clothes, <laughs> yeah. that, that's certainly going to affect some animals. But, you know, deer live in residential areas and they sense those same smells that I described earlier. And, um, you know, it, I think it all depends on the scenarios. If you're in the Adirondacks and a deer's never smelled any of these smells, that's going to have a different, uh, elicit a different response in them versus those in, in a neighborhood setting. So I think we can cover to some degree. I think we can um, reduce scent to some degree, but to truly eliminate our signature as a predator in the environment, I just don't think it's going to happen no matter the technology or the um or the cover that we use yeah and you bring up a, a good point there you know you hear about when you were talking about as far as you know a deer whether or not it's a scent that a deer is is used to 
And, you know, you hear the stories of guys that are, you know, smoking in their deer stand or chewing tobacco or, you know, whatever the case may be, uh, where they're obviously putting out a scent that a deer can easily smell. And in some cases, you know, they say they've, they've been successful doing that. It's, I guess, obviously, I guess these deer can learn to associate certain smells with the, you know, they're triggered by maybe a negative event that they experienced or, um, you know, or they just haven't never had that smell before. So they don't know to associate it for danger. I mean, is that, is that kind of what's, what's yeah, going and, on there? And, and even think about how deer become acclimated to certain things like a ground blind environment, right? That's why we'd want to put it out maybe well ahead of the season. Um, or even, um, when we walk to and from our, our stands, you see that deer react to that, that boot print. You could have rubber, the best rubber boots in the world, but they're still going to detect that there's something different in the environment. Now, if they grew up a deer that lives mainly on a dairy farm and there's all sorts of manure smells out there, the farmer's <laughs> always out working in the fields and folks are walking around, those scents are probably really common to them. But if it's an area where you stayed out of that hunting area all season, and it's the first day of archery season, you walk in, it's all of a sudden a different scent. I think that's where deer have an innate ability to detect something that could be danger. And sometimes they don't run to the next county. They just might move their movement path a little bit, go around that area, and they might just come through the next day, you know, and depends on that particular uh, scent catching environment. You know, if it's a moist day and water molecules are holding scent, they might be able to detect it for longer, maybe three hours since you walk to your stand. Whereas on, um, you know, on other days that sense eliminated, it evaporates in the air and they can't really detect it for as long. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, most hunters understand the need to, you know, be, be downwind of the deer. They don't want their deer, you know, drifting towards, towards where, or don't want their scent drifting towards where these deer are. Um, but, I think as you kind of touched on there, a lot of hunters don't realize how long that scent lingers just from being in the area. They may have, they may have came in clean and not, not been, you know, their scent may not have drifted towards a deer, but their scent is still left in the area there. Uh, do, do we have any idea, you know, how, how long that, that lingers, how long those deer can identify that scent, you know, from you being in an area? Yeah, I can't say from research, but I'll give you a great example. Recently, <laughs> um, I was hunting on on public land with my beagles for rabbits, and they were actively running a rabbit that we were, you know, we were trying to harvest. And while I was moving to get get around and get in on the chase, I jumped another rabbit and I marked it with a little toilet paper to say, come back and we'll jump this rabbit the next time around. Well, that first run went about an hour and a half. And, you know, we killed the rabbit and I said, all right, let's go jump this other rabbit. We went back right at that toilet paper. The dogs could not detect the scent of the rabbit. But as we moved along, it took about 50 yards. Likely we jumped that rabbit again or it was the fresher scent of the rabbit. But these dogs that are highly trained and bred and have hundreds of years of history of trailing rabbits, just in an hour and a half's time, did not detect that as a hot rabbit scent. It was it was a cold scent, so it had dissipated significantly in just an hour and a half. That sample size of one a particular day <laughs> under certain scenting conditions, but it's an example of how scent will dissipate over time. You know, maybe a take home for hunters is it's advantageous to, to some degree to stay in your stand all day. Of course, what we also know is that as you sit in your stand, you develop this big cloud of scent around you um, and you're you're actually, you know, emanating scent in that immediate environment around your stand. But likely your boot prints aren't going to um, detect be detected as easily by deer um, many hours into a hunt. Yeah. Yeah. And there, there's been some some studies, of course, not specific to, to scent, but, you know, as far as pressure. And, and how those deer quickly react to, to the presence of a human in their hunting area and, you know, how eventually, you know, they'll, they'll sometimes return to their normal patterns after a few days. But, yeah, I guess the whole take home is, I guess, you know, you should definitely take every precaution necessary to, to minimize your scent, but you're never going to, 
completely eliminate it. You're never going to completely beat a deer's nose. You just have to kind of do what you can, I guess, to to minimize the impact. Yeah, within the realm of reason, you know, we can we can take those precautions, but you still have to get out there and be in the environment to be able to kill a deer and enjoy yourself. You know, you might want to actually eat something while you're in the stand. (laughs) And uh, sometimes we know exactly, we think we know exactly where a deer is going to come from or go, you know, in our hunting area. But then there are plenty of times when they come from a different direction. So you can only do so much. Oh, yeah. Yeah. uh, You know, for years, growing up and learning to hunt and, you know, you read all the articles that, yeah, just you find the food source and you know where the bedding is and you just set up in between, you know, and catch them. But that rarely plays out that way, especially on public land where you're, you're often you're not dealing with any kind of concentrated food source as far as, you know, a food plot or crop field or something like that. And like you said, there's there's been plenty of times that I just knew in my mind that the deer were going to come from this way. And, you know, they come from a completely, completely different direction. So. It's it's nice the the thought to play the wind is, is nice, but it doesn't doesn't always work out the way the way you'd planned. Yeah, in our dreams it works out every yeah. time. <laughs> That's right. Well, and before we move on to vision, anything else that we really haven't touched on with the sense of smell that is worth noting? Yeah, the, the thing that captivates us quite a bit every year are rubs and scrapes. And, and you know, we talked about yeah. the, the seven glands of deer and, and those scent signatures in the environment. We think about deer rubbing trees. Clearly, you know, they can be rubbing velvet off their ant- hardening antlers, but also they rub throughout pre-rut and into the rut and beyond. And they are leaving a scent signature from their forehead glands and likely the preorbital gland uh, by their eye. And then, of course, scrapes, scrapes being a a calling card, you know, the dating app for deer (laughs) to advertise their presence in the environment and to dictate or at least to communicate to other deer that they're, you know, they're sexually involved in the population. They've got a status in the population and um, they deposit their scent in that environment. And other deer visit those scrapes as well and deposit scent. One great study I want to talk about um, that just recently came out was by Scotty Hurst in Mississippi. And they looked at um, scrapes on a college campus, a relatively small college campus. And, you know, there have been multiple scraping studies. But what they did was they put cameras up and they identified individual bucks and does. And then they used some of this new technology, social networking analysis, and they were able to show that there are these hierarchies of bucks and does visiting these individual scrapes throughout the season. Sometimes those social statuses change, but, you know, like they called one buck king because he was always king. Other deer would act differently after he visited a scrape. And so they were (laughs) able to look at behaviors and timing and social sexual status. Um, And I think that's, that's captivating. And it's just, it's one of those things that it's like, you can learn a lot talking to your hunting buddies. You can learn a lot from other deer researchers, but Scotty is a, is a chemist by training and he was interested in scrapes and did this side study and, you know, kind of opened a new door for us in terms of scraping behavior and scent communication. And so still a lot to learn, but I think collaborating with people like that is something exciting, a new frontier for us in deer management to, to learn more about, you know, what are these scents, how are they changing behaviors, and how are they affecting populations and, and how they breed and interact. Yeah, that, that's very interesting. And, and like you said, it just goes to show we, we've been studying and, and trying to figure out these deer for, for decades now. And, and, you know, we've just scratched the surface, really, I guess. There's so much, so much more to still learn about what's, what's going on with them. And one thing talking about scrapes that that really kind of surprised me is I know, I guess about two years ago, I was out, you know, it was probably late June, was out on a WMA starting to put some cameras out and had a couple places where, you know, I wanted to put a camera in the area, but there really wasn't anything to concentrate them, you know, no no type of terrain or anything in there to, to really funnel their movements. There wasn't any real heavily defined trails in there. And so I just made you know, a couple of mock scrapes just right, you know, again, this is late June 
And immediately those deer started hitting those licking branches. They weren't, you know, pawing the ground, but they immediately started working on those, those licking branches. And I was just amazed the number of, of different bucks and uh, does too that, that came in there and, and check that out and work that licking branch. Yeah, that curiosity. You know, I, I like to rake a little path into, into my stands at home anyway. I don't do it on, on public land because it's not a far walk, but it's amazing how on my trail cameras, then deer investigating that, that cleared earth, you know, long line, 200 yards, and they're investigating all along it. And, you know, we've probably seen that plenty of times in food plots where they come to investigate newly tilled earth, but some of that curiosity and, and imagine that there's probably still some residual scent and certainly the visual signature. um, When one deer visits that licking branch and, you know, it just, amps up that curiosity in the population. Yeah. Well, let, let's dive into some discussion about deer vision now. And before we dive into deer specifically, um, can you just kind of touch on why is it that, that deer and, and other prey species tend to have, you know, the eyes on the, the side of their heads while predators like coyotes and bobcats and, and even us humans you know, have, have eyes that are closer together and, and more forward facing. Yeah. I always go back to this security system thing. It's like, you know, you can have whatever it is, you're, you're sleeping in your bed at night and you hear something, you wake up and you see something unusual in your house, or you even smell something unusual. It trips your security system. You may not know exactly what it is, but you're going to react. And as a prey species, that's how I, I think about deer. They're out there, they're bedded, they've got their, their little hearing antennae up, they've, they're obviously smelling the wind, and they're nice and still, and they're able to bring in a broad visual environment. And so instead of like us, you know, like Brian, we're on stand, I try my best to not turn my head too much, but I'm constantly craning my neck all over. <laughs> Imagine the movement yeah. that creates out there for, for animals right. to see. But for a deer... As much as possible, they're going to remain still looking forward, maybe back to the wind. Maybe they're back to their buddies so they can all be a good security system. And having that wide field of view, they lose binocular vision, so they may may not see as much detail per se, but they can bring in a broad area and something comes across it. Something flashes across that wide field of view and they're able to react to it. They're able to look and turn and use some of their binocular vision to bring in that scene more and look at what might that be? Should I be concerned? Should I react instantly? And so that wide field of view is important while they're bedded. Or even think about going down a trail, transitioning from bedding to feeding areas, whatever it may be. They're plodding along. They're going to pick up some acorns along the way. But all the while, they've got this wide field of view to see a predator or some other danger or even maybe a female that they want to breed with to their left or right. And so bringing in more information from all around them is really important so that that security system or that curiosity system can be tripped all the more readily. And how wide is that field of view? Do we know? We think it's about 300 degrees. And so maybe not quite as much as our friends, the wild turkey, but um, certainly it's like having a third eye almost for us. (laughs) We had two wide set eyes and then one up the middle. We'd be taking this wide field of view. And we'll talk about some more. I hope that we'll talk some more about deer anatomy of their eyes and and how this wide field of view plays out throughout the anatomy of their eye. Yeah, that that was kind of where I was going with the next question is if I'm thinking of, you know, myself and, and human vision and, you know, I'm looking straight ahead and, and I can see out to my sides, but, you know, it's not necessarily in focus. You know, it's just, you know, you can see something moving off to the side or something, but but, you know, you're not focused on those your peripheral. Uh, vision there can a deer that 300 degrees is that i mean can they see that pretty clearly all the way across that field of view or or do they have kind of focal points they they have what we call a visual streak and so we can get into more of that but just in general across their eye they're likely bringing in information that's similar in focus across their entire eye one other thing we should highlight is that the deer eye is much larger than the human eye even just in the width of their pupil that allows light in, everything about it is wider. So wider set, larger eyes, which are wider, 
with a wider pupil to bring in more light from across the scene all dictates kind of bringing in from 300 degrees around them quite a bit of information. What about, I guess, vertically? I mean, are they seeing, is it more of a, a narrow field of view as far as vertically to where, is that where we get the advantage of, of you know, elevating ourselves in a tree? I, I wish that we could say we have that advantage other than you know, some <laughs> deer don't like to look up, don't, don't look up as, as commonly, although as you know, they, they get pretty well trained to look up if they've had some experiences. Oh, but, yeah. um, the best sentinel to tell us how a deer can see vertically is, is that they have this wide pupil that I'm talking about, but during bright conditions, it's tiny, it's very constricted. During low light conditions at nighttime and at dusk and dawn, it's big and round. And as much as it is wide, it's also vertically quite, okay. quite large, a big circle. And so they do bring in information from the vertical scene as well. Gotcha. Now, I think a lot of hunters out there, uh, including myself, kind of grew up hearing that, you know, deer are colorblind. And, you know, a lot of us took that as uh, growing up that, you know, there's, they're see, they can only see things in black and white or, or in shades of gray. But, you know, that, that's not necessarily the case. Can, can you talk about what deer actually see as far as color? Yeah, it's, uh, they're certainly not colorblind. And in fact, they have enhanced color vision in, in some areas of the spectrum. And so some early research here at University of Georgia, they used um, electroretinogram, so an ERG. Essentially, they sedated deer and they exposed their eyes to different colors of light. And they had an indication that deer were dichromatic, that they could see shorter wavelengths, so like blues and purples and medium wavelengths greens, yellows, et cetera, but not those, those, um, those longer wavelengths of oranges and reds. At least they wouldn't see them in the same way. And I was able to follow up on some of this research for my PhD work here at University of Georgia. We use chemistry to map the photoreceptors in the deer retina. And what we were able to do was map that there were shorter wavelength photoreceptors and medium wavelength photoreceptors, but no longer wavelengths. So indeed verifying they couldn't see those oranges and reds in the same way. But we believe that they see oranges and reds, those longer wavelengths, more like a muted yellow, a muted orange or brown. So it has some color to it, especially the green aspects and getting into that more, more yellow range but not the oranges and reds that, that we see in brilliant detail because we're trichromats. We've got three classes of photoreceptors in our retina. There are some species that have four, um, four types of photoreceptors, so they're even better than us in terms of, of color vision at longer wavelengths. But deer do have another advantage. Those shorter wavelengths, so think down at the spectrum of blues and, and purples, they're able to see more of those ultraviolet blues, those really intense blues like you'd see, you know, during uh, a high summer day, like the extreme blue of the sky. And that's because they don't have the same filtering abilities in their lens as we do. So the lens in the deer eye is perfectly clear versus ours are more like yellow shooting glasses to filter out some of that ultraviolet Deer are short-lived. They don't need to have such protection of their eyes. And it allows them to see those ultraviolets that are more prominent at dawn and dusk. So think about when they're moving from bedding areas to feeding and vice versa. When there's a lot of ultraviolet as the sun's rising or setting out there in the environment, they can capitalize on those rays and see in more detail. Yeah. So the, the take home for the deer hunter, I guess, is, uh, you know, your hunter's orange is fine. The, the deer aren't going to pick you out from your hunter orange, but, but leave the blue jeans at home, I guess. Yeah. And you know, um, I'm a proponent of getting my orange a little less brilliant. Um, it's got some ultraviolet enhancement from the factory, um, and some brighteners from the factory. So, you know, go ahead and, and wash it several times, roll it around the mud, maybe work some of that ultraviolet off of there that, that's, um, that appears orange to us, but is actually giving off some, some blue enhancement. And yeah, leaving the blue jeans at home and concentrating on those, um, being more, more similar to what you see out there in the wild, right? Those browns, those greens, et cetera. 
Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up about the UV because that's something I wanted to ask you about. You know, I've seen the uh, as hunters, we've all seen you know some of the ads or commercials. You, you know, not don't use these uh, these uh, laundry detergents with UV brighteners because uh, they'll basically make your clothes glow to a deer. You know, so there is some some merit to that, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. It's like that, that's something that we can't question at all is knowing that that deer lens is perfectly clear and knowing what we know from our research in terms of those ERGs, we can identify the DRC in those ultraviolet wavelengths. And so enhancing through detergent or different fabrics that have those, those ultraviolet enhancements baked in um, would definitely make us more prominent to deer. And so what I think is even no matter the color, that ultraviolet makes us look like a light bulb out there in, in natural habitats. And so you may look just like a tree, but you're a very bright tree. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I, I guess, you know, e- even though the deer aren't seeing uh, a lot of different, or at least the oranges and stuff, you know, they're not seeing that it's, it's blending in. Uh, do you still think camouflage provides some benefit though, as far as, you know, I, I guess at least breaking up our outline out there. So we're not just one, one big blob of, of gray or brown. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, I think I like to think of it as you need to to be seen to some degree to blend in. So having, um, you know, large blocks of different colors and shading is what breaks us up best because the deer are seeing differences in, you know, tree branches versus the sky and the ground versus leaves and tree trunk versus you know background of, of orange leaves and different details. The thing to take home about camouflage, though, is that we see a lot of camouflage that's got extreme detail. And it's great to look at for us in the store, but deer aren't going to pick up on that detail because they've got lesser visual acuity. And so what's acuity? It's the attention to detail, the ability to see detail. So you and I can read you know, small letters on a page, a deer would never be able to see something that small. So versus, you know, leaves that have all sorts of detail, a deer is not going to see the veins on a leaf. They're going to see the entire leaf depending on their distance from it. They're going to see, you know, a bunch of leaves together. They're going to see that those leaves are different than the sky. They're not going to see those very fine details. And so having bigger blockier patterns, maybe Imagine this, we're in two different camouflage patterns so that you don't actually match your, your top and bottom. That's okay. Maybe a different hat, something, a full different pattern to break up your outline. Those things are going to be enhanced in terms of the deer being able to see that you're not a blob. There are different pieces of you, just like there are different pieces of trees and other habitat features. Yeah. Well, uh, despite that, that lower, I guess, visual acuity, uh, that, that, less less detail um they seem to be exceptionally good at, at picking out movement uh is what is it about their vision that that really helps them pinpoint movement better than we can or, or do they yeah i i think absolutely they can there there are a couple couple of reasons why and we can go back to um some of that work that we did right in the deer's retina actually labeling their cells it showed us that they've got this, this horizontal visual streak, so a wide band where they have the ability to see enhanced detail. That detail is less than humans. We know that there are fewer cells there, so they're going to pick up less detail. But it's across this wide band that corresponds to that wider pupil that they have to allow light in, corresponds to their wider set eyes. So think about the deer as it flags its tail running away that vertical tail across that horizontal band in their retina is going to be really prominent. That movement's going to be picked up. Now, the deer may not see all the details of that tail or see how many deer are in the group, but they're going to see something moving across, or they're going to see you and I moving across the horizon. So across a horizontal plane, deer are going to be able to pick up movement better just because of the anatomy of their eye. Some other research done here, Dr. Miller and his student Aaron Watson and others did some work on critical flicker fusion. And that's where um, movement merges into something that's constant. And so for us, it's at 60 hertz. Like when you watch a television screen, it, it looks 
you know, static to us. I mean, the movement of the characters on the screen are prominent, but we don't see all the bands of, of moving frequencies across that screen. A deer, it looks like their critical flicker fusion is over 100 hertz, which means that they're able to pick up movement and almost have more time to process it. Movement to them looks almost like in small in slow motion. So they have this superhero ability, if you will, to <laughs> see motion in a different way and discern it at a speed different than ours. They see it in something like um, that hunter moving across the horizon is almost moving in slow motion to that deer moving across that horizontal band in their retina and allowing their brain to process it and say, this is something that's dangerous to me. I've picked up this movement. I need to respond to it and get to security cover or whatever it may be, how they, however they respond to it. Yeah. And I, I guess that, that slow motion type vision would also explain, you know, how they can quickly maneuver through, you know, very dense cover. And without, you know, running into a tree like we would uh, trying to run through a, a thicket like that. Yeah, right. Branches are, are streaming toward them. They're able to interpret. I need to make a left and right quickly because I'm seeing it in slower motion um, versus we, the, the predator out there that you would think would be able to discern this better. But these prey species are designed to detect danger and respond to it by getting out of town and worrying about what it was later. They don't need to see the details necessarily. So I'm going to, again, I may be asking you to, to speculate a little here, but, um, you know, I think we've all, as hunters, we've probably all experienced that, that scenario where we've, we've got a deer in close and the deer has, has noticed that something is, is out of place, but it just doesn't quite know what. So, you know, it starts the, the head bob, you know, bobbing its head up and down, maybe left or right. Uh, which sometimes is followed by, you know, the stomping of the foot and maybe a quick blow. Do you think, I mean, is that, is that an effort you think to get you to move where they can kind of pick out what you are or what, what do you think the kind of the purpose behind that whole scenario? Yeah, definite speculation, but I'd say maybe three reasons and, and I'll have to remember all three here off the fly, but I'd say that the first would be to move that picture onto different parts of their retina to, to understand maybe I can get a little bit more detail. I can move my head in and out and get a little bit better binocular vision. Sort of like when you and I move a page closer to our, our, our face, if the words are small, right. get a little bit more detail from it by moving my head. Maybe get a different aspect on that scene by moving my head. I think another reason is to try to elicit a response from that potential predator or whatever it may be up in a tree or in a ground blind or whatever it is, I'm stomping, I'm blowing at it. I may even intimidate it. I mean, we've seen videos of deer intimidating predators, coyotes out there on the yeah. prairie. And the third reason would be to alert their friends, right? right? There's something here. I don't know what it is, but let's all be on alert. In fact, let's all look in this direction <laughs> and let's all smell and listen and at the same time, you've seen groups of deer. Some of them are looking otherwise like, hey, do we need to be concerned about what's coming behind us here? And so for those three reasons, get a little different look at things, maybe intimidate or elicit a response. And also just to say, hey, we got an issue here. We might need to react to it. Yeah. Yeah, that certainly makes sense. Now, I know one cool thing that I've read about deer vision, and actually it was my boss, Lindsey Thomas, that wrote an article a while back. Uh, based on some information that he had gathered from uh, a guy named Marty Brooks, a professor professor of uh, optometry and vision science at UC Berkeley. But he was looking at the deer's ability to basically maintain vision on a horizontal plane and to be able to see things on, on the normal horizontal plane, even when they put their head down to, you know, maybe feed on some acorns. And I, I think the term used was cyclovergence. Right. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. Can you kind of dis discuss that and what kind of role that plays in, in a deer's uh, protection? So, yeah, I mean, think about a deer's head is up. They're bringing in the scene. They're bedded there. They're chewing their cud. They're bringing the scene with their eyes horizontal to the environment. They want to see across the natural plane. You know, think about a deer out in a field, nice flat field. Their eyes horizontal. 
And if something shows up on that horizontal horizon, they're going to interpret it as danger or another deer, whatever it may be, easily. When they put their head down, they want their eye also to be horizontal so they can bring that scene in in a reliable way so their brain can interpret it. And so their eye pivots so that it's horizontal no matter whether their head's up or down. It's sort of like a camera on a um, on a helicopter when the police have to, you know, bank their their helicopter to follow a perpetrator. They want it to be able to be horizontal and um, and it pivots appropriately so that they can bring in the maximum amount of the scene. They don't want to see way up in the sky or way down below them. They want to pivot it in a direction that's going to give them good information to be sure they're following the appropriate suspect. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Uh, just, you know, whereas, whereas we would look down and feed and, and be looking, you know, staring at the floor, those deer are, are maintaining that, that same horizontal view. doesn't matter. Like you said, whether their heads up or down and that that's pretty, that's pretty neat. I never before Lindsay wrote that article and never thought about that before. It never occurred to me that, that a deer would, would be able to do that but that that can definitely explain why that deer you know has his head down feeding and you think okay this is a tile draw my bow back he's not looking yeah <laughs> and he sees you anyway <laughs> yeah they've got got all these things in their bag of tricks and the only way we <laughs> get around is if they put that head behind a tree yeah absolutely well anything else before we before we move on to hearing is there anything else concerning deer vision that uh we haven't covered that might might be beneficial for a deer hunter to know. I've got, I've got to plug some of our recent research. So we do a lot of this yeah. work in, the, in a laboratory and, you know, we work with other researchers to try to learn about the anatomy and physiology and what do we think they're seeing, but we're trying to bring it to the next level. And my, my grad student, Blaze Newman, she's actually, her project's funded by Sika Camouflage and, and um, we're working to learn how deer move through environments based on the light environment. And so think about light environments. They've been defined by different habitat researchers, but forest shade, for example. Think about in the summer when you go into a really deep canopied forest, like the jungle. It's dark in that area. If you go way out into an open field, there's tons of light. So you're going to bring in all kinds of visual information. And depending on the time of day, where the sun is, what sort of moon uh, moonlight we have, if there's vegetation on the trees, there are all different wavelengths of light, so different colors of light in these environments and different intensities of light. And so what we did in, in a project in Florida was define those light environments across a broad landscape, and then we tracked deer movements with GPS collars to see how they move th- through those habitat features based on the light environment. And what we found was one big finding is that when deer are moving, we mainly looked at their movement. So from feeding to bedding areas, et cetera, when they're moving, they're going to avoid those deep, dense forests that have poor light information in them. They can't bring in enough visual cues to say, is this a safe area? Their eyes don't have enough light coming in versus, you know, a for a woodland shade environment, dappled light. It's sort of moderate light levels. Some areas are a little shadowed, but not too dark. And, and most areas aren't too bright. Um, so they're able to bring in just the maximum amount of light and feel comfortable moving through those woodland shade environments. Maybe for your habitat managers, it means, hey, it's okay to have some of those dense areas. That's where deer might bed. But when they're moving from those bedding areas out to feeding areas, they want to have enough light information. And so opening your canopy up a little bit might make a good travel corridor for deer. And so that's some exciting stuff that we're doing. We're doing some lab work and then we're looking at deer movements and seeing how they, they come in concert. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. So yeah, it might be, be good to have, you know, good cover, I guess at, at ground level uh, to, to give them the security, but with the open, open canopy above to where they can, they can get some light and, and process that, that information with their eyes. So. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. want to make sure something's not, you know, Hiding in the shadows. You know. <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense. Hey, and when you when you mentioned that, one thing occurred to me. I never even really asked you. Obviously, I mean, we I think most hunters know that that deer can see at night and and see pretty well. But do we know, you know, how just how well they do see in, at nighttime? 
uh, we know they can see fairly well and, and likely better than us because they're also rod dominated. So rods are important. They're the photoreceptors that allow um, information to be processed by the deer's eye and brain at night. They're rod dominated like us. They've got about 20 rods per cone. Cones are for color vision and, and, and uh, discrimination of detail. We also know that they've got a different uh, chemical that we both have this rhodopsin, but deer have a different type of rhodopsin that is more sensitive to light. So it's also impacted by really bright lights, but it allows essentially better um, inputs of light during, during the nighttime. We also know that they've got this really big pupil and big eye that opens maximally to bring in um, a ton of light. And then we know about eye shine, right? Deer have this, this tapetum lucidum, this reflective structure on the back of their retina. And what that reflective structure does, so if you're like out spotlighting deer at night, you've seen deer eye shine come back at you or in your headlights, that tapetum allows deer to get the first um, wavelengths of light coming through their eye. But if they miss some of it, if some of those aren't absorbed by photoreceptors, the tapetum, this reflective structure, bounces those photons of light back to the deer's retina so that they have a second chance to process that information. So just anatomically, we know that deer have enhanced features to process information during the nighttime light environment. And we're also doing some work right now at our deer research facility, again with these electroretinograms, to look at how deer can discriminate colors during dawn, dusk, and nighttime um, as well as daytime light levels. And so we're still working on that, but we're, we're going to be able to see not only how well they can discern light information at night, but also by color. Yeah, good, good stuff. Well, let's touch on, on a deer sense of hearing next. Uh, I, I think this is one area, as far as the senses go, where, where maybe uh, we often give deer maybe a little too much credit. Um, or, or maybe I just have been, haven't been giving them enough, but uh, how does a deer, a deer's hearing compare to ours? Well, the first thing I want to highlight is those big old ears that are like yeah. uh, radar dishes, right? And not only do they have these big ears, but they're also able to pivot them. And so what we think is we haven't been able to show this in experiments yet because deer are sure hard to work with sometimes. They don't <laughs> behave like a dog. <laughs> in an experiment because what we really need them to do is behaviorally when they can still move their eyes not when they're chemically or move their ears when they're not chemically immobilized tell us how they can localize the source of a sound so a sound comes from their extreme right how detailed can they get in terms of determining exactly where that sound came from we know it's likely better than us there have been some great experiments with owls and sound localization we haven't been able to do it well yet with deer so we think in that way, localizing sounds, they get the check mark there. In terms of hearing across frequencies of sounds, we did some work here um, called auditory brainstem response. And so what we were able to do is, is put some electrodes on the deer's head while they're chemically immobilized, so sedated, and we expose their, their ears to different frequencies of sound. And what we found was is that they really did hear the same frequencies that humans can hear. They can hear into the ultrasonic frequency, so perhaps up to 30 or 40 um, kilohertz, which is beyond the 20 kilohertz that humans can hear. What are high-frequency sounds? They are very sharp sounds, so like deer's snort, it's, we can hear it, it's sonic, but something even much higher than that like what bats use for sound localization of their prey in flight. They put out ultrasonic waves of sound and it bounces back to them. They can hear it and figure out where that prey species is. Deer have similar abilities in the ultrasonic frequency. But by and large, their hearing doesn't appear to be much different than ours, at least from this, this, um, this experimental um, determination of it. We know that they can hear best in the mid-range mid frequencies, so it's very similar to our voices right now, and the sound of our voice is very similar to a lot of the vocalizations that deer make, including uh, grunts. And so similar, but likely being able to move their ears and being able to hear in those ultrasonic frequencies kind of gives the deer um, the edge versus us. 
But by and large, you know, when we're out there hunting, Brian, you know, when you smash something on your tree stand, you drop something out of the stand, you walk loudly in the leaves. If you or I were out in the woods, we'd say something's coming or I hear something over the next horizon because it was a metallic sound. It was something right. different. Once again, it triggered our curiosity. How a deer responds to it probably depends on some of their innate reactions to things like that. You know, the way they were born, genetically programmed to respond to those things and also their experience. Yeah. And, and speaking of that, I don't know. Have you seen uh, Lindsay was just showing me some of this the other day. Have you seen the research that Daniel Crawford is doing at Texas A&M Kingsville? where he's looking at how deer react to, to these different sounds. Yeah. Broadcasting uh, some really wild things, including yeah. like sports <laughs> announcers and, and whatnot. Yeah. yeah. Lindsay was showing me some of those video clips and, and how the, those deer were responding to different things. Like you said, from anywhere from songbirds to coyotes to yeah, uh, a UGA sports announcer. <laughs> but, <laughs> well, I like to that, think about like when I'm out playing around in my yard, you know, I can see the garden all day and deer just don't care about it. As soon as I step foot beyond that yard edge, it's on like Donkey Kong. They're going to react <laughs> to me walking in those leaves because they know from experience we're going to go to battle down there in the woods. And um, anyway, it's uh, it's all what makes up your environment and, and you know, what you might consider to be a danger to you as a prey species. Yeah. Yeah. I, I had this exact conversation with a, uh, with a guy who does a lot of suburban bow hunting and we, we were talking about that and, you know, he was saying his, his belief was that these deer can tell the difference between, you know, him being out there and the homeowner being out there in his yard, you know, whether it's, whether it's smell or sound or, or what they're using to assess that. But, um, you know, they know when something is, is different or off in, in their environment. So they're in, in that way, they're a lot like humans. Like I said, you yeah, know, in our yeah. own homes, we can detect those, those differences. So I, I had, I didn't have this in my notes, but when you start talking about deer and their frequencies and being able to hear in the higher frequency, I got to ask, what about, what about these, uh, these deer whistles that they sell to put on cars. Is that, can, can deer hear that? Is there any indication that those are effective? Well, that's the, that's the funny thing. We started some of that research because we were working with Georgia department of transportation to find ways to keep deer off our roadways. And the reason that we went right to the deer anatomy piece, can their brain interpret these sounds was because we didn't want to do product testing. First and foremost, we wanted to get to the root of the matter. Secondly, those products on the market, the few studies that have been done, well, some deer whistles don't make hardly any sound. Most of them are well within our hearing range, so they're not beyond human hearing range. They aren't ultrasonic. And so, um, you know, and think about all the sounds that a vehicle makes on the highway. I don't know if you've stood next to a highway lately, but there are sure <laughs> a lot of sounds. And boy, they're hard for me to get used to. And you've seen plenty of deer feeding along the roadway. Those little tiny deer whistles that, you know, folks stick on their bumper, does that likely change a deer's behavior? We actually took it to the next step. Instead of testing products that were on the market, we designed our own sound production system and installed speakers on the front of a vehicle. And we calibrated those so sounds along highways. And so we knew exactly what sounds, their frequency, and how loud they were along that roadway. And then as wild deer approach the roadway, we drive at normal speeds through that section of road and turn our sounds on in an experimental way. We did this hundreds of times. What we found was the deer did not react to most sounds, except really low frequency sounds like a bass cannon. Maybe you've got a bass cannon in your car to listen to you know, <laughs> rap music, whatever it may be, heavy duty rock and roll, whatever it might be. Deer reacted to those sounds and they reacted in a negative way. They ran in the path of the vehicle. And why do I think that is? I think they could feel those sounds. You can actually feel the bass. You can feel low frequency sounds. Right. Those sounds yeah. carry much further. Like elephants use low frequency sounds, you know, to communicate from some, something 20, 30 miles away. Those low frequency sounds just elicit a response in deer, whether they know what it is or why it's bothering them. It just triggers something in their system to run away from it. 
and usually it's in the path of the vehicle. Yeah, so that's not that's not good. I was going to say so uh, crank up that base, but no, if if they're going to no, run yeah. into the path of the vehicle, yeah, maybe <laughs> maybe not. Maybe, maybe that's not a good option. Well, anything else on the hearing side of thing that we haven't haven't touched on that may be of interest? That's about our current limit of understanding about deer hearing. You know, I'll tell you that I think that um, the calls that we can hear, deer can also hear. And think about when you're out there calling or rattling, maybe think about having your buddy call or rattle from a distance away. And if you think you want to impact deer from 100 or 200 yards away, can you hear it? If so, deer can probably hear it. If not, there's a good chance that deer aren't going to hear it either. So just thinking about some of the limitations and how far calls will actually go. But, um, you know, being cognizant of the sounds we make and how deer might interpret them. Otherwise, we're probably never going to fully combat sounds because we're always going to walk through the leaves and we're always going to climb trees. And <laughs> when we draw our bow, it's going to make some sort of a sound. Yeah. Yeah, I've heard, I've heard guys talk about I, I have not. I can't say that I've really tried this, but I know, I know some guys that go as far as to, you know, when they're still hunting or getting going to their stand, you know, they're kind of mimicking uh, a turkey. You know, they'll, they'll stop every once in a while and maybe scratch and, and make a few yelps or something. Or, you know, I've heard other people say, you know, just don't don't walk in a normal human cadence, you know, maybe take, you know, three quick steps and then stop and stuff like that. But who knows? <laughs> yeah, know, I'm always it's, it's watching like those squirrels. Like, what is it? These squirrels are so loud, but deer don't even react to them. How can yeah, I do that? Exactly. And maybe I should have taken ballet, but I can't seem to run like a squirrel, it seems. No, no. It, you feel a little silly. You know, <laughs> just kind of running through the woods at the speed of a squirrel. <laughs> oh, but yeah, good good stuff, Gino. I, I appreciate you taking time out to come on here and, and talk with me about all that. Um, I I don't know if there's anything you want to plug as far as uh, UGA and uh, do you guys do much in the way of social media or anything like that? To- yeah, that folks can check out our, our websites. The best access to us, they can even ask us questions there. It's ugadeerresearch.org. and um, we post our some of our research findings there, and they can connect with us and. I'll tell you what, I, I invite people to really look at what some of our graduate students are doing. So young, up-and-coming professionals, they're doing some amazing research. And, um, and several of our studies are right in this direction of learning more about deer senses because we're sure curious about it. And so folks can see some, some of our project information right there on the website. And if they've got questions, they're, they're welcome to reach out to us. Well, good deal. I'll be sure to include the link to that in the show notes. And and yeah, like you said, there's just so much cool research going on out there surrounding deer and, of course, a lot of other wildlife species. But um, stuff that, you know, if you if you can get past all the, the statistics and, and the scientific speak, uh, man, there's some some great information in there for just the, the average deer hunter uh, that, you know, they can use and, and help us all help us all be better, more successful hunters. Yeah, we still have a lot to learn. That's what's exciting about it all. And you've got me excited for next deer season. I got to get out and do some scouting, I guess, because we've been <laughs> talking deer so much. <laughs> there you go. Yep. It's it's never ending, that's for sure. Yeah. Uh, it's either deer season or getting ready for next deer season. That's so. right. But yeah, Gino, I appreciate it. Appreciate your time. And uh, I enjoyed it. Yeah, it was a good time. Thanks a lot. All right, guys. That wraps up our interview with Dr. Gino D'Angelo. Uh, Thanks so much for checking out this episode of the Deer Season 365 podcast. If you haven't already, please consider subscribing to the show. You know, you can find us on all the popular podcasting platforms like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and and several more. So about anywhere you could listen to to podcasts, you should be able to find us there. Uh, Or you can just go to DeerAssociation.com slash podcast and subscribe directly from our website. Uh, Hey, we'd also love it if you take just a second to leave us a five-star rating or a written review. You know, those both help us uh, climb the the podcasting charts and be more visible to, uh, to future listeners. So we would appreciate any support you could give us there. For more information about the National Deer Association, you can visit our website again at deerassociation.com. From there, you can sign up for our free weekly newsletter Hey, you can become a member and don't forget about that podcast promo code that we talked about at the beginning of the show 
to get you a little bit of a discount on an annual membership and that free NDA hat. So be sure to take advantage of that. And uh, hey, just enjoy some of our several hundred articles of, of free content right there on our website, covering everything from hunting strategy to food plots, habitat improvement, um, deer management, you name it. Uh, if it's deer hunting or deer management related, we got some good content right there on our website available to you. So check that out. And of course, you can always find us on all the popular social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube at Deer Association. So again, thanks for listening to the Deer Season 365 podcast, the podcast where deer season never ends. <laughs>